But Ward, you're just going to have to learn to, to give a little to get a little, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of five to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Adventures in Angular. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 113 of the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have Lucas Rubelke. Hello. Ward Bell. Hello, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. We've got two special guests this week. We have Marcel Good. Hello. And Steve Schmidt. Hello, podcast. Uh, Do you gentlemen want to introduce yourselves really quickly? Sure, yeah, I can start. So, yeah, my name's Marcel Good uh, with Ward Bell. I'm a partner at IdeaBlade, and I've developed business and enterprise applications for much of my career with technologies such as .NET, as we will be talking about today, Java, as well as others. And uh, prior to making the transition to the modern web development uh, developing large-scale single-page applications. Uh, I've developed WPF and Silverlight applications as well as Windows Phone apps. So the client-side kind of development is part of my background. And so Visual Studio has been uh, a trusted tool for uh, for many years for me. All right. Um, my name is Steve Schmidt, and I've been a developer for uh, <coughs> years. Uh, but uh, let's just say I started out uh, doing COBOL, and uh, since then I've been working. I've kind of gone back and forth between Microsoft and Java technology stacks. Um, and most of my Java work was uh, doing web applications, where you know using JSP and servlets and those kind of Java technologies. Uh, but I've been doing uh, Microsoft for the past five years or so, and uh, I'm happy to be doing. Uh, .NET development, in, especially when it comes to uh, web applications. And that's what we're doing now, mostly at IdeaBlade. I so wanted to say, my dad told me about COBOL, but I don't think I'm that young. <laughs> <laughs> Your dad's not that young. Uh, yeah, whatever. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, so the topic for today is Angular in a .NET world, which is kind of interesting because... I think in a lot of cases when we're talking about Angular, we're talking about something that we can build on the front end and just connect to whatever back end. But different communities do have different ways of thinking about it. So it'll be interesting to dig into um, how .NET developers look at um, Angular. So if I could piggyback on that, uh, Charles, the occasionally I get um, like an angry comment on my blog about like why in the world would you do this? This is a ridiculous example. You could just do this in three lines of code on the server, and I just kind of have to stop and realize that you know people, you know, are still doing a lot of server side rendering. And I think for me, 
I think a lot of you know, front-end developers were just like, oh, it's all on the client, and this is the brave new world. And not necessarily the case, um, or occasionally I'll go do training or consulting with a client, and you know, half the room is, is hostile because you know, they really want to do things on the server, and we're trying to basically pull them into you know, doing things in the client, in the browser. And so I think I'm, I'm really curious about you know, what is you know, kind of the general temperature of the .NET community in this shift from you know, server-side rendering to client-side rendering. Or, you know, maybe the better question is, is, you know, like, why not just stay with MVC? Like, it's worked, we've done it, and, you know, why would we move away from, you know, from MVC? Well, just to make kind of a counterpoint to that, um, what what we're finding is that the people who who come to us and say, hey, you know, we, we want to do, a, you know, this modern app using Angular or Angular 2, whatever we're, <laughs> whatever's the flavor of the month, but um, they're, they're really... Um, trying to replace a desktop application or in some cases a silverlight application something where they had a very rich experience for the user and so they want they say well we really like the the web model the development model the deployment model um but we we don't want to our users don't want to give up anything that we've given them already with their say uh, with their desktop application which they've written in you know uh, c sharp using wpf for win forms even um and so what we're seeing is not people who came from, uh, uh, they're trying to replace an MVC application with something more modern, but rather a desktop application. And they say, hmm, well, if we do this, then we have more deployment options. People can use it on their high tablets or whatever, and uh, um, we'll be uh, better set for the future that way. Um, it's, a, it's kind of a different question to say, okay, well, why should I replace my MVC app with an Angular 2 app versus why should I replace my desktop app with an Angular 2 app? Right. When I met you guys, Marcel and Steve, and maybe, maybe you were going to go there, Marcel, you guys were entirely on the server. That was, you know, that was your Java app, and, and we kind of like strolled in the door to, to supplement with a little client-side um, um, WinForms app, I think it was. It was that long ago. Yeah. Uh, but you guys, you guys lived the life of uh, the comparable MVC, whatever the Java equivalent of MVC is. So, so, so you got real experience making that transition. Maybe you can explain why it feels feels right to you. Yeah, that's that's correct. So both both Steve and I came from the more traditional uh, web application uh, world where we did everything server side with Java using frameworks such as Struts and. Uh, before that, even just plain servlets and stuff. So we we know that world pretty well, but I think along the way, many of us realized that writing rich, interactive applications with that kind of technology is, yeah, it's, it's a bit misplaced, right? We have tried early on in this community to see the little Ajax uh, into these traditional web applications to make them feel a little bit more interactive, more like the desktop applications. And that's really kind of what's taken over and where it has gone, right? If you look at, the, at an Angular 2 application today, I mean, it's really the... Uh, Ajax on on uh, on hyperdrive, right? Because we're we're doing everything on the client and we're making Ajax calls to the server to uh, uh, to get data uh, instead of constantly round tripping back to the server. So to add on what Steve has said earlier, it is indeed the case that the most most people that we interact with, the most customers that come to us, 
they've already kind of made that transition earlier. They're either written desktop applications because they've realized the web is just not as flexible as a desktop application, or they like the uh, the web model and they have gone the Silverlight route, right? They they like the .NET productivity, they like developing in C Sharp, but they also like the web model and Silverlight and that model really gave them that kind of richness and interactivity and more of the desktop application feel feel on the web. And so we've we've made that transition and the customers that we're talking to have made that transition. And today you still have really two camps in the .NET world, right? You still have those that feel like they want to do everything on the server. They're writing MVC apps and they're kind of looking at what the future holds there. And you have the other camp that has made that transition already and has realized that leveraging the client's capabilities into client-side computing in this world, you can actually build fairly rich uh, web applications that feel like desktop applications. We can deliver that kind of richness, uh, even though we don't like it, but we can deliver a grid, right? A lot of... uh, a lot of our enterprise customers, they, they really love the grid, scrolling around and filtering and sorting and searching. And that you can do that with Angular 2. It works because it's all, it's all client-side. And uh, with, with the MVC model, that, that's not as easy because you're constantly round-tripping back to the server. Tell us uh, briefly about what kinds of projects you've actually worked on with Angular 2. I mean, so many of us... For many of us, Angular 2 is relatively new, uh, and many of the people you're talking to, including me, write mostly demos. You guys have actually built some things. Right. So, yeah, we've definitely, many of the apps that we've, we're working on right now or have already built uh, are Silverlight replacements, right? We have existing customers that we have worked with in the past, we have written uh, pretty extensive Silverlight applications for them. And with Microsoft killing off Silverlight and Chrome, uh, Google with Chrome actually even more proactive than, than Microsoft themselves and killing off support for the Silverlight plugin uh, with, uh, I forgot which version it was, but it was earlier this year. Uh, a lot of them find themselves in a position where their Silverlight application only runs in Internet Explorer uh, at this point. Uh, that's that's okay for for just internal use. I have a customer in Germany, for example. They, they've written a large system that they run their own business on, and the, the users are all internal, so they, they can dictate Internet Explorer, no problem. But for those that have a bit more diverse uh, user base where they can't necessarily dictate uh, what what the browser is, uh, that's one of the recent customers that we've worked with. They've actually had an application that is available external to, to their users. And there are people coming from like Mac Safari, Mac Chrome, Windows Chrome, Windows Internet Explorer, Edge. So you find all the browsers. And with the Silverlight application, they're just pretty much in a corner, right? And uh, so that's a lot of the projects that we're doing. 
taking these cellulite applications and basically rewrite them as an Angular 2 application. And we're finding that that's actually not that big of a deal because a lot of the concepts, the patterns that I think we're going to talk a little bit more in this podcast about, a lot of those things transition over uh, to the Angular 2 model and we can build equivalent rich applications using HTML, JavaScript, actually mostly TypeScript nowadays, right? We don't, I haven't actually written <laughs> raw JavaScript in a while, but TypeScript and all the web technologies and we can replicate these Silverlight apps. Uh, can you give us a sense of the size of these kinds of apps that you've done so far? Yeah, so for example, one app is uh, has about 6,000 lines of code. Uh, that's mixed server and client, uh, over 100 components. Um, so Angular components in this sense, uh, about 120 business entities uh, that are populated from about 154 tables. And another app that we're currently working on is at the moment around 2,500 lines of code. We expect that to, to be at the end more like 35, 4,000 lines of code. It's at the moment about 50 components. That will probably be also be more like 100 at the end and 140 entities. And they do a lot of mapping uh, at the uh, ORM level. So they're actually almost 800 tables uh, behind that 140 entity model. That first application Marcel was talking about, yeah, that was originally a Silverlight application. And uh, they you know they saw the saw the writing on the wall in terms of you know what was happening with Silverlight and and basically they wanted more deployment options um, and they have a, a rather diverse client base um, they're kind of an information aggregator across their industry uh, and so they they um, they really wanted to to make sure their app was kind of future proof in that way um, and so we you know we looked at the existing Silverlight application and found that. You know, with the with what's in Angular two, uh, you know, all the the basic component structure and everything uh, could easily support what they were already doing, and it was, uh, I think, uh, it took about three months to develop that, and that's there's some something on the order of sixty different screens in that you know, in sort of uh, logical screens in that application, and um, they had we had a basic working application in about three months. And since then, they've, they've come up with all these other things they want added onto it now that they've seen the kind of productivity we've already been able to give them. So, so let's talk some tech now. Um, uh, a lot of people that we run into are saying, well, um, Angular 2 seems to be written for the, the .NET world and all the tooling, but uh, I live in a .NET world, the Microsoft world, and I need to use Visual Studio, and it hasn't felt so great. So what, what kinds of tools are you guys using, and, and, how, and how do you deal with it? Yeah, so for, for these apps, the, for customers that are coming from the .NET world, right? obviously those that have existing silver applications, they've developed them with Visual Studio. And they have a .NET backend, and as far as the backend goes, we we don't really have any good reason to change that. If you're if you're comfortable with the with the Microsoft uh, server stack, uh, then .NET uh, is is a great uh, server side uh, technology with Entity Framework and Web API and all that. Uh, that works really well. So you you find yourself inside of Visual Studio to develop uh, your your server side. 
And you might as well stay in Visual Studio to develop your client side instead of constantly switching tools. And that's really, I think, where a lot of uh, the questions come from, from the .NET community, because they're, they're really used to doing everything in Visual Studio. We have worked with customers that if the, the moment you mention command line, they, they jump at you, right? So every, everything uh, needs to happen inside of Visual Studio. There needs to be an extension or a plugin or whatnot uh, so that they can do everything in Visual Studio. That's, that's the world that they work in. Uh, we're actually kind of using a bit of a hybrid uh, for these kind of projects. We do most everything in, in Visual Studio, client and server side. That's actually working fairly well now with Visual Studio update uh, 2015 update 3. Uh, before that was a, a little bit rocky because Visual Studio, for example, completely ignored the tsconfigjson file and you had to basically tell it all your TypeScript compiler options in the project file itself, and not everything had an equivalent setting in the project file, so it, it was a bit rocky. But now it works pretty well. We can build inside of Visual Studio the, the complete application. But we still find ourselves to have a command line open on the side and run the TypeScript compiler in watch mode, for example, because uh, there's still a little bit of... Uh, Queries that if you, it seems to work that if you edit a single TypeScript file and you save it, then the compile on save works. But if you edit multiple files and then save them all, uh, Visual Studio only seems to compile one of the files. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a bit of a hybrid world, uh, I would say, right now. Uh, and we're obviously using NPM for getting all the packages. Uh, there is not really a way around that. Uh, Microsoft is pretty much reducing NuGet to just uh, delivering of assemblies. All kind of content scripts and content in general, they, they're going to take out of NuGet and basically point you to uh, NPM and uh, well, at one point, uh, Bower, but it seems like Bower is not that popular anymore. Um, so it's it's basically the web tools that everybody else uses if they're not using Visual Studio, right? things like NPM. We even use Gulp uh, to do some automation. And it integrates actually quite nicely in, uh, in Visual Studio. There's something called the, uh, the task runner where you can actually tie gulp tasks to build events inside of Visual Studio. So if you build in Visual Studio and you need some gulp tasks to be executed at the same time, you, you can do that. Or you can even do it when you open the solution that it immediately starts the TypeScript compiler in watch mode, for example. Uh, that's that's kind of nice. So then you don't even have to open the command prompt on the side and remember to run the TypeScript compiler in watch mode. I mean, for me, that was one of the big the big changes um, coming from Angular One because so, we've done some projects in there and there it was you know you you download the libraries you need manually or maybe you could use uh, NuGet to get them or something like that but with angular 2 you know it's it's all the dependency on all these npm modules so you're you're going to use npm whether you like it or not so like marcel said they put some things in visual studio or, or you can get some extensions that to make that pretty seamless um because you know otherwise i'm like ah, why can't you just do all this with ms build you know that the build tools in visual studio 
Um, you know, when doing starting work on, I think it was even Angular One. Everybody was saying, ah, you know, you have to use WebStorm or something like this. And then by the time Angular Two came around, it's oh, why are you using Visual? I think this is Ward talking now. Uh, how come you use in Visual Studio? Use VS Code. It's so much better. Da, 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 da. Well, you know, I'm I'm pretty comfortable in Visual Studio, and I like it pretty well. And it, um, since I'm doing server side development at the same time, I, I I'm maybe my brain is a little too uh, ossified. I can't switch back and forth between editors with such facility that, you know, it gives me whiplash. So I I, I like I like to be able to stay within Visual Studio when I can. Um, uh, you know, I'm getting used to the command line again, like everybody else. I guess is where we all came from at some point. Um, but um, to Marcel's point, also, um, they've been developing Visual Studio um, continually, adding more features, making it uh, very capable with with TypeScript and with uh, the whole Angular 2 environment. And um, I think having Visual Studio Code out there um, as a, as a separate thing is is good, and it, I think that they're trying to leapfrog one another in terms of adding features and capabilities and so forth, and hope that continues. You, you guys, you, um, we just recently, actually, in final, made a commitment to TypeScript 2. Um, making Visual Studio honor uh, different versions of TypeScript, is that doable? It well, sort of. Uh, I mean, we are using two now uh, with uh, pretty much all the projects uh, as we as we migrated them to the final version of Angular two. Uh, but you can't really easily use different versions of of uh, TypeScript in Visual Studio. It wants to use the basically the latest one that you have installed, and that that's what it goes with. Uh, there is. There is a setting in the project file that says uh, which version of TypeScript that you want to use, but all that really seems to do is complain if it finds that you have installed a newer version than what you're saying, uh, than what it's saying in the project file, and then it basically offers you to update the setting in the project file. That works a lot nicer in Visual Studio Code that actually pays attention to even your, uh, your package JSON and looks at what what dependency do you have in there? And then if you have a newer version mentioned in in a package JSON than what's coming with Visual Studio Code, then you can tell Visual Studio Code to actually use what's specified in your workspace and not what it ships with. So that that's a bit of an issue with Visual Studio to jump around between uh, different different versions. Well, well, why would I why would I want to do that, Marcel? I mean, don't I usually just say like I want to use this version, you know, like Angular, like I want to use two point zero point two. Let's go. Isn't that then it's going to be okay, right? Right. Generally, that's okay for uh, uh, your active projects, right? That you're working on, but you may have like a project that you worked on like a year ago, six months ago, and you're opening it up, and it's still on one eight maybe, or even something earlier. And you, you, it may not compile on the two, right? Because there have been breaking changes uh, over the months over the different versions of TypeScript. And we have run into this as well, where we've started, we've actually done Angular 1 projects fairly early on with, with TypeScript. I think the first version of TypeScript was 1.1 one, one something or 1.2 something that we started with on that project. And then over time, newer versions of TypeScript actually introduced breaking changes. 
And so we couldn't compile the old code anymore with the new version of TypeScript. Uh, none of these breaking changes were really major, but it required to clean up a few files uh, to make sure that, that they compile with TypeScript, uh, with the latest version of TypeScript. So that's when you may find yourself in a situation where you are you have the latest version of TypeScript installed, you're opening up an older project, and it doesn't build anymore. Yeah, there's a there's a place in Visual Studio where you can tell it, you know, where to where to search for the TypeScript and other tools like this. And um, it may be possible to put a project placeholder, you know, for your project directory and have it look there. I haven't even tried that, but um, uh, mostly you, you generally want to try to stay up with the latest because they keep adding things all the time. But yeah, there are definitely cases where, as Marcel pointed out, um, you need backward compatibility and uh, you. you prefer to stay on a, a single version for a single project until you decide to upgrade it, not uh, when um, some other project decides the whole machine needs to be upgraded. So, so how do you guys um, debug your app? Um, I, I know Visual Studio people love to be able to break point right in the code inside Visual Studio. Um, my sense is that that hasn't been easy to do. Uh, of course, the rest of us outside of Visual Studio world don't, wouldn't even think of, of doing that, but what, you know. I don't. I don't know. Maybe maybe people use WebStorm break in. They, yeah, they put breakpoints in there. Anyway, what do you what do you got for Visual Studio? It could, yeah. So we actually debug in Chrome. Um, it's the I've never actually tried it, but I suspect if you were to use Internet Explorer, that you could actually debug it in Visual Studio. But the Visual Studio debugger just uh, basically does not work with Chrome, right? They don't they don't really know each other, <laughs> if you will. Uh, so we're we're finding ourselves debugging in in Chrome, and that that works uh, really well. Obviously, uh, the moment that you're hitting the server, uh, you'll be debugging in Visual Studio as as far as your server code is concerned. Uh, but personally, for example, I I don't even hit F5 anymore in Visual Studio to run the entire application in, 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 in the debugger because it just takes too long. I'm, I'm now used to the much faster turnaround when I change a TypeScript file, it gets compiled on save, and I just hit F5 in the browser to refresh, and off I go. And if I do have an issue server-side, so if I'm running into a bug and the, the, the problem is actually on the server, then I attached a Visual uh, Studio debugger to uh, to IS Express, so I can debug what's going on in the server, and at the same time, I, I debug the client uh, in inside of Chrome. So that that's how I work, and that's what I recommend. Uh, I still see uh, a lot of people do F5 and like pay the price of. Uh, spinning up the, deb the, the debugger in Visual Studio, and all they're really changing is the client code, right? So yeah, that's terrible. Be, it's terrible, yeah. They could be a lot more productive to just, I basically let the server run uh, um, unless Visual Studio decides to, to kill it or IAS Express decides to, to stop. Uh, the, the server is kind of always running because most of the time I'm I'm developing client-side code, right? That's what these applications are about. Most of the action is happening uh, on the client. So I spend my time developing client code, and then I, I don't need to constantly uh, spin up the uh, the debugger in Visual Studio. 
Yeah, that makes that makes uh, a, a lot of sense. Um, when it comes to production, like like I, I know a lot of you know all of our samples are System JS, but did I hear you guys? Somebody's exploring Webpack in Visual yes. Studio. That's not that's not a combination I'm used to hearing about. Not really. Uh, so yeah, with the the recent project that we're working on, both Steve and I are on that project. Uh, We've started to to use uh, Webpack and actually bundling the entire app. Although this morning we just went back to System JS after going to the final version of Angular two, because uh, uh, I was running into an issue where somehow it packages up Bootstrap uh, into the bundle. I suspect it's the UI control libraries from DevExpress that we're using that that bring in. Trader Bootstrap somehow, and uh, it's complaining that require is undefined. So that's yeah. something we have to look into. But other than that, we've actually had quite uh, good success with uh, with Webpack bundling up the scripts, including inlining the HTML templates, and uh, have basically just a single bundle that gets downloaded to the browser. Yeah, we started this for performance. I've you know, there's a when the larger your app gets, you've got, you know, uh, you're loading up each one of those components independently and it's HTML template, um, as well as all the Angular modules themselves, which all get loaded independently. And it makes for, a, what do we have, 600 round trips, something like this, uh, just to to see the homepage of the application. Um, and with Webpack, we've we've basically combined all of our, all of our, files into one, uh, all of our application files into one, and then there's all the vendor component libraries that we use, and that's a second one. And so we have Webpack watching for any changes in our code base, and it rebuilds our application bundle, and not the vendor bundle, but just the application bundle. And then, you know, when we F5, we reload the page, and it comes up much quicker, um, and is actually, you know, faster than doing the system.js, even though we're only changing one file, if you if you F5 the browser and reload everything, you could still be in for a long wait. Um, but to Marcel's point, uh, we, we found some problem. We'll we'll get back to, to fixing it again and using Webpack once again, but it was pretty easy to switch back and forth. So between system.js loading, where we load each individual file, and Webpack, where we bundle them all up, it's just a, a couple of changes in a couple of files um, to, to switch back and forth between the two. Does being in a .NET world, I'm thinking about this and what you were talking about, does, does that affect the way you, you structure the application? You know, where you, what files go where, that kind of thing? Or, or with somebody who's following along with the documentation and had a certain structure that was kind of where that was pointing, um, would they be able to use that structure? You know, what, what is the effect on, on, on uh, my file structure? Yeah, so with .NET Classic, uh, if we if we want to call that, uh, so the current version of that .NET, we don't really do anything special as far as the structure is concerned. I mean, you can. I started out with taking the uh, the quick start from Angular I/O and basically threw it into a Visual Studio solution uh, unchanged, uh, other than adding the Visual Studio solution, but the structure. Is exactly the same. The, the system uh, JS config is in the root. Uh, there is an app folder where the app sits, and that's all exactly the same. However, if you if you go into .NET Core, that's a little bit of a different story because .NET Core actually prescribes a certain structure uh, of your solution. They differentiate between 
what they call your development directories uh, and then what's actually getting deployed on the server and served up by the web server. So you have basically a WW root folder into your solution and only the stuff that you're putting into that folder will actually get served up by, uh, by IAS. Uh, so there's a bit of the issue of, or a question initially, where are you gonna put your TS files? The JS files obviously gonna have to be in the WW root because they have to be served up at runtime, but the question is, are you gonna put the TS files into the WW root as well? Uh, the answer to that is yes, if you wanna debug in Chrome, uh, but technically you shouldn't, like based on the recipe that Microsoft provides for .NET Core is like your source code and stuff should actually be outside of the WW root, including your entire node modules folder. And then you're supposed to use gulp tasks to basically move the pieces of your node modules that you actually need at runtime as well as all your runnable code, et cetera, you're supposed to move that into the WW root uh, folder uh, when, when you're building. So it is a bit of a, I'm not quite convinced about that setup. I understand where they're coming from, that you, you're in control of what ultimately is publicly visible uh, from your web server, right? We, we often, the way we structure the code today is that Technically, everything we do is publicly visible, right? Many of us deploy the entire node modules folder into the WW root of, of your web server, and technically, you could load up any script that's sitting in your node modules folder. Microsoft is taking a little bit of a different approach with .NET Core and says, well, you shouldn't really do that. You should only move the scripts that you're actually using into the WW root. Um, so nobody gets any ideas of trying to uh, access something that they shouldn't and that's not actually used by the application. Yeah, I think when you when Webpack is used, then it it's walking the dependency tree and only bringing in the things that you need and, and putting those into this bundle. So that might be the deployment model that's that's most favored at some point, even in core, uh, is to use something like Webpack that brings in the things you need, puts them in the right place so that they can be served to the client, and and that's it. As opposed to uh, you know some other thing that copies them individually. So I want to sh shift topics a little bit here. I want to talk about data. We had a show not too long ago about Redux and all this uh, this, this whole critique of two-way data binding and mutability and all that stuff. But I'm still waiting for the Reduxer uh, or the R, you know, uh, NGRX um, aficionado to show me anything other than a five-entity uh, application. <laughs> and um, so you guys mentioned that you had a lot more. Like, uh, so maybe you can refresh our memory about how many more and then how you're managing data in your applications, what you're using to do it with, and uh, what the consequences of using um, that thing are in terms of where you spend your time writing applications. Yeah, so well, we generally have domain models that are in excess of 100 entities, uh, uh, sometimes more 200, 300 entities. And, and they're interrelated, right? They're interrelated. It's they're, not like, like 100 yeah. separate things. Okay, exactly. Yeah, we're, we're, we're talking, we're, we're talking about graphs. 
you know, customers that have orders, orders have order details that are have products which are related to pricing and those come on contracts and so on and so forth. I mean, this is an, an endless tree of entities, each of which has dozens of properties. Yeah. And so, all, yeah, these, all these things are things that, that again, we're coming from, uh, in a lot of cases, a desktop application uh, paradigm where the users are expecting to be able to manipulate these things the way they want to. I'm going to add a new order and I'm going to add some line items to that order and I'm going to modify this other order over here and take some line items off of that one and move them onto this one and then save the whole thing at once, right? So this is what they're used to doing with their desktop applications and this is what, you know, the the uh, the paradigms that Microsoft and others have built up over time is that, you know, the way you develop these things is in sort of this entity-oriented fashion where you've, you're dealing with, with your objects in C-sharp or now TypeScript, whatever, uh, classes that represent these different uh, types of business entities, and you manipulate them, and then you perform some save operation that then sends them all into some database. Um, and when you put them on the screen, um, there's some data binding happening between the properties of these individual entities and uh, you know the actual controls that they see on the screen, and the developer doesn't have to worry too much about that. Um, they can uh, put these things on their screen. Uh, they can set up the data binding between the, the screen elements and the objects. And after that, it just works. And uh, when we're talking to people who've developed these kinds of applications, this is the kind of thing that they want to still be able to do, um, even when we're working on the web. And the Angular 2 component model fits kind of nicely with what they're used to in terms of these controls that they've had to develop the desktop applications. And also, then they said, well, okay, well, what about the data manipulation? Uh, how do we how do we save these things? How do we query them? Um, do we have do we have control over sort of the transaction boundaries, things like that? And so that's where uh, Breeze comes in. Um, it's a, a library that um, basically lets you do uh, these kinds of operations on the client, wherein you can define queries to pull data in from the server. Uh, you can manipulate that data on the client and then uh, take a look at just the entities that have changed, um, perform validation on them, and then send those changes back to the server for saving. Um, this is what they've been used to uh, from their client applications using uh, uh, various Microsoft data access technologies. And uh, this is what Breeze gives you in the, uh, in the JavaScript client on the browser. Yeah, I think one one important point to make here is that these these applications that we typically build in the enterprise and business environment these are CRUD applications uh, primarily, right? So they are they are meant to modify data. They're they're doing searches, they're bringing data in, they're modifying it, they're saving it back. And so for that kind of model, uh, the approach that we have with Breeze, in, in our opinion, fits, fits much better than the Redux model. Because uh, in this kind of world, you typically modify parts of an entity graph before then you eventually hit save and you want all those changes to be saved uh, to the server and communicated also throughout your application. If you have parts of your UI that are bound to the same data, if you change the customer name over here, for example, and you save it, you expect that name to pretty much immediately reflect uh, on, on other parts of the UI as well. 
But Marcel, I have been told repeatedly by the aficionados of Redux that this leads to utter total chaos and complete fragility and applications just immediately collapse under the complexity. <laughs> Has that occurred to you at any time on any application of this scale across any, not only here, the couple of, however many projects we've worked in Angular 2, but anywhere else? No, not not in my experience at all. Uh, it's we're we're actually using uh, a unit of work pattern in in the middle tier to encapsulate the uh, the task or the workflow that that the UI is working on and and the data that that goes with that. And you you typically have in these kind of applications you have some sort of a transaction boundary, right? So you're you're sitting on a screen. You're looking at some data, customers and orders and whatnot, and you're making some changes to that. And before you're leaving the screen, you're you're meant to save the data or the changes so that you don't lose them. So the paradigms that you see in these applications are these kind of units of work that, that you see repeated throughout the apps that you're sitting on a screen, you're making some changes, you save it. And having like an entity graph that can be in flight uh, gives you the ability to utilize the Angular 2 router guards, for example, to then just ask the unit of work and by extension the Breeze Entity Manager, do you have any pending changes? And if so, you can prompt the user to say, do you want to save or do you want to throw them away or do you want to cancel and stay where you are? So we actually have not had any issues uh, in terms of complexity or the application imploding <laughs> or so, anything like that uh, with trying okay. to manage the data. I, I realize Ward just set me up for an ambush. And um, <laughs> let me just be clear. I, I, I'm not even going to let you start, Lucas, because I want to ask one more question of these guys. Oh, you're going to just sure, like, walk yeah, into that. You can come in. But surely, surely using this apparatus must require hundreds, perhaps Thousands of oh, lines of code set this set these entity oh, models. <laughs> <laughs> right. Isn't that true, Marcel? Hold on, hold on, hold on. So, okay, well, let's. All right, let's let's let Lucas have his say. Really, well, we should let Lucas speak. Okay. Yes, if you can just indulge me here for a second. The reason why I like Redux is because one, it is a mechanism or a pattern to minimize shared mutable state. Secondly, is it gives me a place to essentially do a transaction to mutate state in one place and then propagate it to the rest of the application. And so, you know, Ward's redux prejudices aside, it seems to me that, like, these are some of the same mechanisms that you just discussed. So, for instance, you have, like, you know, UI, you're making some changes. And so I think you called it a transaction boundary that is essentially keeping, you know, that state that you're doing, you know, kind of maintained within that. And then when you are ready to actually say, we're ready to actually move forward with this transaction, then you save it. And then it basically propagates through your entity model. And so when you say entity model, I'm presuming you mean that you have a single kind of, like, model that's storing you know, basically the data or the state or, you know, the entire application. And so, one, I'm philosophically aligned with, like, okay, 
we have this boundary to minimize shared mutable state. You know, that's good. That's a technique I use a lot. Um, Redux aside is I think, you know, you really need to have that boundary. And, you know, I have this kind of transactional mechanism that, okay, I'm ready to actually like commit this to, you know, my application model. And then there's a sensible way for it to propagate to the rest of the application. And like, it seems to me like that we're kind of using the same pieces and they're just maybe called something different or we're coming at it from a different angle. But I mean, I think, you know, minimizing shared mutable state, you know, having a sensible way to communicate that to the rest of the application and, you know, having your state in a single place and not, you know, you know, strewn across your application, but having a single source of truth. The, these seems like pretty fundamental concepts that I would hope we could all agree on. Yes, that, that is true. I think philosophically, I would say the two approaches are more aligned than than many want to accept, <laughs> maybe. And uh, so, yes, if you look, I definitely uh, agree that the, in, in, in the world that we're in with object graphs, we have seen crazy things uh, being done in applications where, as, as you say, the mutable state is spread all across the application. You have to like fish for the pieces that ultimately need to come together <laughs> that you need to save to the server, uh, etc. So yes, I, I totally agree that a more central place where you're managing your changes, and then you can basically say, okay, I'm good, I want to have this saved. And that's that's definitely the model that, that we're using uh, around Breeze. And Breeze actually facilitates that uh, because of the domain model, the single domain model that we have, and the entity model in Breeze. Uh, Breeze becomes the single source of truth, if you will, for all your data. And as you're making changes to it and the same entity is bound in different parts of the UI, those changes immediately propagate and you're always saving your changes through the central place being Breeze and Breeze handles the, uh, the communication server side. Yeah, so we, we're probably more aligned uh, on, on, the, on the approaches than we think uh, in, 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 this, uh, in this world. And back to Ward's, Ward's point there, but doesn't this get all crazy when you've got, what, how many, 100, 200 entities and so forth? Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things is that working with people who, this is their this is their business. I mean, they're, the, the domain model represents their business, so they're pretty familiar with that. And they've got this whole C-sharp model. They were, we're dealing with .NET here. They've got a C-sharp entity model, domain model on the server. Um, what we're doing now with Breeze is uh, basically we generate TypeScript classes to parallel those C-sharp classes so that they get the same uh, domain model, same set of entities for doing their client-side development that they have on the server. And so they're dealing with you know this nice, comfortable set of uh, entities that represent their domain model that they're already used to working with, and they can work with them um, in their TypeScript code as well. And so then they get all the all the benefits of the the strong typing and IntelliSense to see what all the properties are on a given entity and so forth when they're developing their client-side code. Well, I mean, all that stuff just sounds fantastic. I think, you know, let's, at this point, I'm, I'm prepared to break bread 
and saying potato, potato, tomato, tomato. And uh, you guys have definitely said things that I think are fantastic. But Ward, you're just going to have to learn to, to give a little, to get a little, buddy. <laughs> well, one, of the, one of the other things that you know I've heard about, the, uh, the advantages of having uh, immutables and so forth is that you get better performance because um, you can tell Angular, well, I, I, you know, nothing here has changed, so you don't need to do change detection on this tree of, of data or some, so forth. Um, but frankly, with, with Angular 2, I haven't really seen any performance problems with, with uh, using the, our mutable objects either. So uh, maybe, it, maybe having, you know, 2,000 objects on the screen isn't enough to stress it, or maybe my our machines that we've used are just too powerful <laughs> to see the problem. The thing we haven't explored yet, because we haven't needed to do it, precisely because you haven't experienced the performance challenges, but, but if and when, you know, should we ever run into it, one of the key features is that we can still, just like immutability relies on, uh, you, you know, you change, uh, you, you change the way the component is designed so that, so that it, it's um, it's got a push feature that says, don't even bother with change detection unless I tell you, unless the object the identity changes or unless I tell you. And because um, Breeze has a, has an eventing model, you could do that same thing and, and only tell change detection to kick in when a relevant change occurs and, and wire that straight in. And, and that's something we haven't done yet, but it's something I want to demonstrate how to do so that we too can use that same... Uh, performance feature when we need it of turning off the continual change detection and only kicking the change the cycle change detection when something happens. Uh, we're actually doing something like that. We're, we've got an observable that and we have a, a publisher that sends these events across the application to other things that are listening to them and so forth. But we can show you that later. So let's see. Um, uh, here's a question that somebody had. Are there good, simple examples of Angular 2 working with Visual Studio and, and all that stuff? Do we, do we have anything for those folks? Yeah, we do. That's actually one of my picks for, for the end of, of the podcast. We've, uh, we have this reference application here at IdeaBlade that I've developed a long time ago initially for, uh, for Silverlight and WPF uh, with, with uh, a framework that we've developed back then with the .NET product uh, that we've had uh, in the past. Well, we still have it, uh, but we're not actively doing anything with it anymore. But so this this reference application kind of has hung around uh, with us, and I've used it in workshops uh, with customers. Uh, I've pointed uh, potential new customers at it, and they have actually, back in the days with Silverlight, some have used it successfully as a, as a building block to then build their own application on top of it. And so I've recently redeveloped the app with Angular 2. We have published that. Uh, it's a Visual Studio solution. It basically demonstrates the patterns that we typically uh, use in these applications. Uh, it has a webapi.net uh, backend. But we've also just published a Node.js backend for the same exact client. So the same exact client code can run against .NET backend as well as a, a Node.js backend with uh, pretty much no changes on the client. And so we're 
We're definitely trying to to promote that and point people who are struggling and are new to this world and trying to figure out how do I build these applications with uh, with Angular 2 that have screens that I navigate around to, that have a domain model behind it, where I can make changes that I can save, changes that I can reject, etc. So that's, uh, that's an example that we can make available to anybody who is interested in. You know, in, in that you brought up an interesting point. Um, we've talked a lot about Breeze in connection with .NET, but that's by no means the only server technology, right? That is correct. Yeah, Breeze is, is server agnostic, and it's uh, it has become a bit of a perception problem because we went to market initially with uh, uh, with the .NET backend out of the box. We, we, we call it the .NET productivity path to primarily have a solution for these set customers that we, we talked about earlier that are coming from the WPF and Silverlight world, and they're, they're faced with having to redevelop these applications. And so the .NET backend was the first out-of-the-box backend that we shipped with, uh, with SQL Server and Entity Framework, all, all the good stuff. But in the meantime, we ship other backends out-of-the-box with Node, MongoDB, uh, node SQLizer, if you need to talk to a uh, relational database. Uh, we have a Java backend out of the box. So whatever your, your server technology of choice is, uh, Breeze can support that. And we're actually working with a customer right now that is using a .NET backend, but we're using service stack and not web API and not entity framework. And we have to basically adapt Breeze to understand the payloads from their existing services because we're, we're, we're not redeveloping their server side. We're only redeveloping the client side. And we're having no issues getting Breeze to map the payloads that are coming from their service stack backend and uh, understand that payload, turn it into entities. And same thing on the safe that we can send the payload and take it apart on the server and hand it off to their persistence layer. If only I could afford Breeze. <laughs> it is free. <laughs> oh. <It's> a, <laughs> open okay. source. <laughs> oh, well, Break. geez. Get your paycheck out. <laughs> hey, but for Lucas, for Lucas, I've got a special deal. You know, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll get you. Dollars. Well, exactly. Half off yeah. the usual price. <laughs> uh, we should. We we. Uh, it's been a, a a wonderful show. I think we should move on to picks because we're running out of time. Yeah, I was gonna chime in, but yeah, let's do it. Uh, before we do that, though, um, I do want to give Marcel and Steve the opportunity to tell people how to follow them, find out what they're doing, that kind of thing. Yeah, so uh, I think we're, we're most active, I, I would say, uh, around our GitHub repositories. Uh, so if you're interested in, in anything that we're doing uh, around Breeze, Breeze is our product. Uh, I'm not sure if people realize that, uh, but the, the, idea, <laughs> <laughs> the company idea blade is behind the Breeze library. So we have a certain so interest. What is Breeze? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> So if, if, if you're interested in Breeze, then you, you can find us uh, on uh, GitHub, or the easiest is if you go to getbreezenow.com. 
and uh, look at the documentation, download it, and then uh, you can you can reach us through the the GitHub repositories. Uh, most definitely, uh, re respond to that. We have various samples out there, not just the Breeze library itself, uh, but the the Tempire example that I just talked about uh, is out there as well. So that that's how you can reach us. Uh, you can always email info at ideablade.com. Uh, we can help with developing applications. Our main business is consulting. So we're, we're helping uh, folks that are struggling with these kind of applications, trying to figure out how to develop them. Uh, so if, if you're in need of help, then reach out to us. And uh, I'm on, on Twitter as well at SuperSwiss, uh, so you can you can reach me through tweets as well. Steve, how do they find you? Uh, they don't. It's through you, actually, Ward. But uh, oh. yeah, <laughs> Steve's Twitter yeah, is like, at Ward Bell. Like for, <laughs> for ourselves, and most of them, most of me seems to be on GitHub. Um, I do it. I keep meaning to do some blogging, but I haven't really done it, and uh, and I'm not I'm not tweeting these days, so. Um, but uh, what Marcel said. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do our picks then. Lucas, you want to start us off with picks? Um, come back to me in like two seconds. I'm looking for a link here. All right. Ward, what are your picks? Well, uh, I'm doing two conferences. The most immediate one is Silicon Valley Code Camp, which is free. It's in the Bay Area. It's the largest um, code camp in the country. Uh, October 1st and 2nd, so it's coming up soon. I'm hoping our show is out by then at Evergreen Valley College in the in the South Bay. And it covers just an incredible array of technologies. We've got great speakers from around the Bay Area, including Doug Crocker. Uh, and, you know, and I'll, then there's a not-so-great like me. Uh, and so... Uh, Please come. I'll put the registration uh, in the notes. And then the other one is that I'm doing uh, Dev Intersections in Las Vegas in the fall. So is John so, uh, and Dan Walleen and a bunch of others. Um, so I'll put 